welcome everyone to the fall classic for DB Review. And it's a night that I kind of cherish because, it, well, I don't know. It just it seems fun to be able to get together and have voices uh, finally match with names and recall voices perhaps you haven't heard since last November. Uh, it's good to have all of you here. We are tonight discussing Thomas Hardy's The Mayor of Casterbridge. And everyone who wants to participate is going to get a shot at that before we're done. And uh, so that's uh, that's how we're, we're going to begin this. Today, it incidentally, is the 13th, as you all know. And it marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of uh, narrator Alexander Scorby, uh, whom almost everyone in the room, I think, has probably heard at least once and probably a lot more than that. So not only is it the fall classic, but it's kind of a special occasion as well. And that was one of the reasons I chose to have it on a Wednesday night this year, was that this is the 100th birthday, and, the, you know, those only come around once. And uh, so, again, welcome. Um, we want to begin, if that's okay with everyone, with perhaps some discussion about the, the some general stuff about the book and the author. And I've asked Bonnie to uh, just give us a couple of minutes here, brief stuff, if she's available to do that. Um, no, and this will take about eight minutes. It's, it'll be a little bit longer than you perhaps wanted, but I don't know how to shorten it at this point, so I'll do what I, what I committed myself to doing here in the way I did it. Thomas Hardy was born in 1840 in Higher Bockhampton, Upper Bockhampton in his day, a hamlet in the parish of Stinsford to the east of Dorchester in Dorset, England. His father, Thomas, worked as a stonemason and local builder. His mother, Jemima, was well-read. She educated Thomas until he went to his first school at Bockhampton at age eight. For several years, he attended Mr. Last's Academy for Young Gentlemen in Dorchester, where he learned Latin and demonstrated academic potential. Hardy's family lacked the means for university education, so his formal education ended at the age of 16 when he became apprenticed to James Hicks, a local architect. Hardy trained as an architect in Dorchester before moving to London in 1862. There he enrolled as a student at King's College, London. He won prizes from the Royal Institute of British Architects and the Architectural Association. Thomas Hardy never felt at home in London. He was acutely conscious of class divisions and his own social inferiority. However, he was interested in social reform and was familiar with the works of John Stuart Mill. Five years later, concerned about his health, he returned to Dorset and decided to dedicate himself to writing. In 1870, while on an architectural mission to restore a parish church in Cornwall, Hardy met and fell in love with Emma Lavinia Gifford, whom he married in 1874. Although they later became estranged, her death in 1912 had a traumatic effect on him. After her death, Hardy made a trip to Cornwall to revisit places linked with her courtship, and his poems, 1912, to 1913 reflect upon her death. In 1914, Hardy married his secretary, Florence Emily Dugdale, who was 39 years his junior. However, he remained preoccupied with his first wife's death and tried to overcome his remorse by writing poetry. Hardy became ill with pleurisy in December 1927 and died at Maxgate just after 9 p.m. on 11 January 1928, having dictated his final poem to his wife on his deathbed. The cause of death was cited on his death certificate as cardiac syncops with old age given as a contributory factor. His funeral was on 16 January at Westminster Abbey, and it proved a controversial occasion because Hardy and his family and friends had wished for his body to be interred at Stinsford in the same grave as his first wife, Emma. However, his executor, Sir Sidney Carlyle Cockerell, insisted that he be placed in the Abbey's famous Poet's Corner. A compromise was eventually reached whereby his heart was buried at Stinsford with Emma and his ashes in Poet's Corner. Shortly after Hardy's death, the executors of his estate burnt his letters and notebooks. Twelve records survived, one of them containing notes and extracts of newspaper stories from the 1820s. Research into these provided insight into how Hardy kept track of them and how he used them in his later work. In the year of his death, Mrs. Hardy published the early life of Thomas Hardy, 1841 to 1891, compiled largely from contemporary notes, letters, diaries, and biographical memoranda, as well as oral information and conversations extending over many years. This was followed by the later years of Thomas Hardy, 1892 to 1928. 
a second volume. Hardy's work was admired by many writers of a younger generation, including D.H. Lawrence and Virginia Woolf. In 1910, Hardy was awarded the Order of Merit. Hardy's birthplace in Bockhampton and his house, Natsgate, both in Dorchester, are owned by the National Trust. Thomas Hardy criticizes certain social constraints that hindered the lives of people living in the 19th century. Considered a Victorian realist, Hardy examines the social constraints that are part of the Victorian status quo, suggesting these rules hinder the lives of all involved and ultimately lead to unhappiness. Fellow British poet Philip Larkin, in his essay, Wanted, Good Hardy Critic, describes Hardy's work this way. What is the intensely maturing experience of which Hardy's modern man is most sensible? In my view, it is suffering or sadness, and extended consideration of the centrality of suffering in Hardy's work should be the first duty of the true critic for which the work is still waiting. Any approach to his work, as to any writer's work, must seek, first of all, to determine what element is peculiarly his. In Two on a Tower, Hardy seeks to take a stand against these rules and conventions, setting up a story of love that crosses the boundaries of class. The reader is forced to consider disposing of the conventions set up for love. Nineteenth-century society enforces these conventions, and societal pressure ensures conformity. Hardy's characters often encounter crossroads, which are symbolic of a point of opportunity and transition. But the hand of fate is an important part of many of Hardy's plots. In Far From the Man in Crowd, for example, people are affected by chance. Had someone not sent a valentine or not missed her wedding, for example, the story would have taken an entirely different direction. In 1898, Hardy published his first volume of poetry, Wessex Poems, a collection of poems written over 30 years. Hardy claimed poetry is his first love, and after a great amount of negative criticism erupted from the publication of his novel, Jude the Obscure, Hardy decided to give up writing novels altogether and to focus his literary efforts on writing poetry. After giving up the novel form, Hardy continued to publish poetry collections until his death in 1922. Although he did publish one last novel in 1897, that novel, The Well-Beloved, had actually been written prior to Jude the Obscure. Although his poems were not initially as well-received by his contemporaries as his novels were, Hardy is now recognized as one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. His verse had a profound influence on later writers, notably Philip Larkin, who included many of Hardy's poems in the edition of the Oxford Book of 20th Century English Verse that Larkin edited in, 18, in 1973. In a recent biography on Hardy, Claire Tomlin argues that Hardy became a truly great English poet after the death of his first wife, Emma, beginning with the elegies he wrote in her memory. Tomlin declares these poems among the finest and strangest celebrations of the dead in English poetry. Most of Hardy's poems, such as his, such, uh, deal with themes of disappointment in love and life and mankind's long struggle against indifference to human suffering. A particularly strong theme in the Wessex poems is the long shadow that the Napoleonic Wars cast over the 19th century. Hardy's family was Anglican, but not especially devout. He was baptized at the age of five weeks and attended church where his father and uncle contributed to the music there. However, he did not attend the local church of England school, instead being sent to Mr. Last School three miles away, as I mentioned before. Hardy frequently con conceived of and wrote about supernatural forces that control the universe more through indifference or caprice than any firm will. He showed in his writing some degree of fascination with ghosts. Despite these sentiments, Hardy retained a strong emotional attachment to the Christian liturgy and church rituals, particularly as manifested in rural communities that had been such a formative influence in his early years. Hardy divided his novels and collected short stories into three classes, and I'm nearly done here. Novels of character and environment are the first one, first set, and they include The Poor Man and the Lady. I'll skip the publishing dates. Under the Greenwood Tree, Far from the Man in Crowd, The Return of the Native, The Mayor of Casterbridge, The Woodlanders, Wessex Tales, a collection of short stories, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Life's Little Ironies, a collection of short stories, Jude the Obscure, Romances and Fantasies are the second type of novels and stories he wrote, and that includes A Pair of Blue Eyes, The Trumpet Major, <clears throat> Two on a Tower, A Group of Noble Dames, it's, which is a collection of short stories, The Well Beloved, and that was published as a serial from 1892. Then the third category is novels of ingenuity, um, desperate remedies, the hand of Ethelberta, and uh, 
Things in the mayor of Casterbridge are the importance of character, the value of a name, and the indelibility of the past. And a motif that he uses often is, of course, the idea of coincidence. Thank you very much. Outstanding. Thank you. That's a good, concise biography. One of the things I noticed as I read this book was Tommy uh, was Hardy's obvious obvious uh, acquaintance with the Old and New Testaments. There are so many biblical references in here. It was just astounding to me. And it made me stop and wonder how, and I'm not trying to cast negative aspersions on any group of, of folks, but I wondered how today's young people would have handled some of those biblical references. I don't I don't suggest that they aren't as well-versed in it, but perhaps in some pockets they may not be. And so I think that some of what Hardy wrote might be lost. But I was impressed by his... Uh, it, interested to me, it was interesting to me to learn that he was not necessarily devout in his faith um, because he certainly seemed to have the knowledge. I guess it's that all that study of Latin and uh, so on that would do that. Anyway, I've digressed, and I apologize. Let's get started. What I would like to do, if it's okay with everyone, is just have those of you who um, want to participate talk about your general perspective of the book, your feelings about it. What Maybe you can just tell us two things, what you really liked best and perhaps what you liked least, if, if you want to go there. So let's just start, and I won't pick anybody per se. Um, I'm going to quit so that you can jump in. And again, feel free to participate, please. Hey, this is Alan Lemley. Uh, what I liked best, I guess, is just some of the uh, the word usage that 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 they used during this time when when they wrote. Uh, vocabulary was a whole lot more important seemed uh, back then than than maybe it is now. So I like that I'm kind of a wordsmith. What I didn't like is I just really didn't like the book. I mean, it just I I really didn't like any of the characters. I didn't really care too much about them and. Uh, I don't care what time period a book is set in. Uh, you know, if if I don't like the story, uh, and I, and I don't like if I don't feel something for any of the characters, then then, then I'm just not going to like it. So uh, next time, folks, when you vote, remember time is relative on on the length of these things. And this 11 hours, at least to me, seemed a whole lot longer than the 44 hours of the Count of Monte Cristo. That's all I'm gonna say. All right, thanks. I um. Loved it. I really enjoyed the 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 bringing in of the good as well as the evil of um, the mayor. Um, the only true saint, if you know, the perfect person was Susan, although she also slipped up, you know. But I loved, and in contrast to to Alan, I loved the. Um, Vocabulary or the, uh, the the whole story. I just thought it was absolutely great, and I'm glad I voted for it. And by the way, this is Mickey Pran. Hello, I I liked the story. I especially liked uh, the the writing style and getting a, a, an ability to see what life was like back in the 1880s when he wrote that. Uh, I enjoyed the narrator. Though I had to listen very carefully sometimes because of the accents, so I didn't get lost in the story. Uh, that's it for me. This is Deborah Kendrick, and I, I really don't deserve to weigh in because I only read about an hour and a half of the book. But um, I can't exactly say what I liked and didn't like, but what I will say is that I seem to have a lifelong struggle with Thomas Hardy, and eventually he always wins a little. In other words, I've tried to read other books and come back to them, and 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 ultimately, and one that sticks in my mind is the Tess of the D'Urberville. I, I tried so many times to read that, and then when I finally got into it on the fifth or sixth try, I really thought it was an excellent book, and so I suspect that I'll think of you all a year or so down the road when I try again to read this book and manage to get into it. It's just, he's difficult. The language is lovely, but he's just difficult to, um, to get, for me anyway, it's difficult to get engaged in his story. 
this is Jill, and I like the book too, but I do like Thomas Hardy, and actually, what really surprises me about his writing is that this book was actually basically dated, I figured, around 1825. But every time I read his books, I feel like he must have actually lived back in around 1825, which isn't true. And, and I think that is so interesting because I've had a hard time realizing that he actually died, you know, in the 20th century. Um, so there, and there really wasn't anything I didn't like about the book. I felt a little bit sorry for the mayor at the end. Um, and I was really shocked in a way at the very ending of the book when you got the impression that she felt, uh, Susan felt, she didn't deserve what, ha what the happiness that she received at the end because she had had such a miserable time during her teens. I thought that was an interesting comment on Hardy's part in relation to really how sad the world is. All right. Anyone else want to jump in? I, um, uh, you know, I'm kind of the... the <laughs> uh, I think Don and I make up an, uh, an interesting team because he's able to, to bring some, some depth into this that I'm probably going to miss. So um, not, not to put you on the spot or anything like that, I just wonder... Did you want to jump in here at this point, or uh, how do you want to proceed? You know, I had very interesting reaction. I had read the book a couple of years ago, loved it, read it this time, found it very, very hard to get through, and I don't know why, uh, but I really struggled with it. What I like about the book is that there are no real perfect characters. That's certainly a plus. The language is, is beautifully, it's beautifully written, I liked the exploration. To my mind, our main character, the, the, the problem or the, the theme is that he got so caught in his past that he didn't really live in the present. And I thought the end was horribly sad and, and very, very kind of tragic. But here's this person whose whole life he, he tried for recognition, he got a good deal of recognition, and ultimately said, no, I don't want that recognition. I don't deserve that recognition because he could not forgive himself. He could not get over that major transgression early on. And I think that that was that was the tragedy of the whole thing in my mind. And this is uh, this is Joshua. This is the uh, first uh, Thomas Hardy book that I've ever uh, I've ever read. And I got to say, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought the narration was excellent. Patrick Horgan, the different accents he did the, uh, the you know the, the Scottish accent, you know, and the different accents he did a very good job. I really, I I like the language. Um, I can't really think I can't really think of a character that I you know that I that I didn't like, and uh, I liked for me I liked the book. It really it really goes to show you I think for me that uh, you know in life situations you need you need to tell the truth. I mean if something you know. Even though when people, people, you know, when they try to keep something from you because they say it's for your own good, you know, in the long run, is it really for your? Is it really going to be for your own good, or is it going to hurt you by not, you know, telling you, you know, the truth? If 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 Elizabeth Jane had known, you know, you know from the beginning that you know the sailor was not her real father, and if she had known, you know, or you know, well, she thought that he wasn't her real father than it turns out he actually was and Michael you know that you know the kind of the uh, the different uh, patterns you cut that it, as things are revealed you learn differently but I, I just uh, that's what I took away and I gotta agree with Nolan when he mentioned I was very surprised too there were all kinds of all kinds of biblical references you know to Job and to Gideon and all kind. I mean I, I recognize the uh, the uh, the references but uh, I really liked it the language was just it was great. It was, to me, it kind of showed of a more simpler time. I mean, it showed you what life would have been like, you know, 150, 160 years ago, which was very, very uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I want to echo what Joshua just said about about truth truth telling. That that was a good comment. 
And my experience has been that when when people are, are withholding or, or not telling everything for your own good, it's usually for their own good, I've found. Okay, this is Bonnie, and I read this book during a time, I'd read it once before a long time ago, and I love Thomas Hardy. Um, I like the language. I like the time. I love the, the British setting and the village setting. But I read this at a time when I'm going through a lot of desperation personally in my own life and needing to find another place to live. So in a way, it gave me a different perspective. And I think I understood their desperation more. Women back in that time were pretty much kept by men. They didn't have a way to make life on their own. They were dependent on men. And so a lot of what looks like uh, bad decisions and bad choices were decisions that people made just because, in a lot of ways, they were maybe they were doing the wrong thing, but they were trying very, very hard to survive. They were taking the next possible thing they could, trying to just be able to live. Because, of course, they were poor, some of them, and desperate. And I kept, at first I started to think, well, gee, every time something happens to a woman here, the woman just kind of pines, pines and then dies. And what's with that? You know, it's like as soon as they have a problem, they die. Of course, that's sort of the a thing that happened in a lot of those novels. Um, but we do try to be good, and sometimes I think um, when we have doubts or we have fears and we have anxiety or when we feel that someone is hurting us, sometimes we give in to our baser motives and our baser selves. And the interesting thing about it is that in many ways, the main character did try to come back to be a good person and so you had this sort of move of the tides going back and forth. That was very interesting to me because it's a constant struggle to be good. It's a constant struggle to fight evil and to do good and to be good. And that's all I have to say. Now, since we've got the phone thing open, um, I am a huge Thomas Hardy fan, too. This is not my favorite. I think Return of the Native is my favorite, perhaps because that was the first Hardy I read decades ago. I thought this was a tad melodramatic, um, but uh, the plot certainly kept you reading, and uh, it had a lot of plot twists and turns that you, you didn't expect to happen, and of course, like everyone else, I thought the language was spectacular, and I ended up not liking Michael much, um, although at the end, I thought the way they handled the burial was, was sad. I, I would have liked to have seen him treated better in the end at his death than that. But um, uh, he was definitely a tragic character that brought on a lot of his own misery by his own action, which in some ways makes the tragedy even worse when it's brought on by yourself. I was just kicked off and just came back. I don't know if anybody has made this comment, but I read this book for the first time, and I couldn't guess what was going to happen next, like... A lot of books I read, you know, you, you kind of figure out where it's going. And so that was one thing that I liked about the book a, lo a lot. Okay, excellent. Um, let's move on, if you're okay with that, folks, and, and let's get a little bit more specific now here. Um, when I was a sophomore in English, I had an extremely animated English teacher who, uh, Tom Moore, I'll never forget him, he, he taught this book. And so he vivified it and brought it to life in ways that when I reread it this time, you all heard Patrick Horgan, I heard Mr. Moore. <laughs> and um, he would stand at the desk and, and he would yell at us, not in anger, but in absolute unbelled enthusiasm. There's just no restraining him. Where's the symbolism, class? Where's the symbolism? And he'd bang on the desk and, oh, the guy was just a, an absolute actor. But he was not uh, crazed or... He, you, you know, it was just one of these guys who loved what he taught, and he loved it with such passion that he um, brought it to life for all of us in that year. Um, so I do want to talk in <laughs> his honor. I think I think he may even still be alive somewhere, but certainly in, in his honor, if you don't mind, a little bit about some of the symbolism in this book. For example, one of the things that struck me rather, um, as I say, vividly, was the, you're never too far from the old Roman Empire with this book, are you? You know, you get, it gets pointed out to you rather clearly here that Castor Bridge was, is on the site of what was an old Roman um, village. And, and you, you just about hear the tramp and the brutality of the old legionnaires. 
even though we are now several centuries down from that when this book takes place. In what way do you think Henchard is is like that 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 sort of microcosm of, of the Roman Empire? Well, this is uh, this is Joshua. Um, I think you know when you think about the Roman Empire, you know they were they wanted they were uh, they were conquerors. You know they were soldiers, they were warriors. They wanted to you know kind of get as much territory as they could, and they were they were good uh, you know military fighters, of course. And uh, and Henchard, you know Michael, he was. Uh, you know, he kind of wanted power. He wanted recognition. He wanted, you know, look, I'm the mayor. Look at me. I, you know, I got this fancy house. Everybody, you know, I'm on the seat of the uh, the town council. I'm, you know, I'm somebody. You know, it didn't it didn't last. It eventually, uh, well, kind of, well, you know, the same thing. The same way the Roman Empire eventually uh, declined and, uh, you know, you know, didn't exist anymore. It kind of happened to him. He he kind of fell from his uh, lofty heights. You know, from what he to mayor. You know, to Someone else becoming mayor, and you know that uh, I, I could definitely see that. That's how I look at it, anyway. Yep, you would have gotten an A in uh, in Mr. Moore's class. Uh, those are the very things he brought out. Any other thoughts on on why this emphasis on Rome with Michael Henchard? It's a it's a fascinating thing to think about. If uh, the downfall of Rome is a symbol in it, I thought the mayor was basically an honest person. His downfall came through uh, a personality flaw. He, he made the wrong decisions, and he wanted to beat the other guy, and that led him to his downfall. Uh, and this is Mickey. Uh, his downfall also was brought about by excesses, and the fall of Rome was brought on by excesses, or that's the theory, um, and that might be part of what he's trying to show. Now, this is Nolan. That's a brilliant point, and, and you're correct, I think, in that, you know, gosh, he went all those years without touching alcohol. 20, 21 years. He took the oath and kept it under probably some pretty stressful situations, frankly. I mean, you know, you, you're you doing the mayorship of this town, and you're trying to run your business, and, you know, maybe the first thing you want when you get home is a, is a cup of something uh, that would help you unwind. I don't know. Um, but he manages for all those years to keep that oath. And at at what point do you do you see the uh, the breaking of that oath or the ending of it um, as any kind of a turning point there for him? Does that accelerate things, or is that just a subplot of the book that we could have done without? What are your thoughts? This is Joshua. I definitely you couldn't. I think I think at least for me, I could definitely see a really, really uh, you know, things started downhill. I mean. Once he said, you know, he's like, you know, two, day, two days, you know, now I can break the oath because by that time he really wanted to, you know, you know, uh, kind of, you know, show up uh, Donald, the other, the Scottish guy that was his friend, you know, when he said, you know, when he started drinking, you know, he kept, uh, you know, showing up to places, uh, you know, drunk. Elizabeth Jane had to kind of, uh, you know, get him out of uh, some places, you know, kind of take care of him. Because he just kept, you know, drinking, and that definitely accelerated his his downfall. At least to me, I could see that anyway. Oh, this is Alan. Yeah, you know, I really wanted to like the guy. You know, I mean, there, there were there. I mean, obviously, he, what he did at the beginning of the book was heinous, but uh, uh, you know, the, the fact that he kept that oath w- was was commendable. And then, you know, I really liked the part where the the woman that had uh, at the carnival or whatever that, that sold him the the uh, the rum or whatever it was at the beginning of the book, you know, when he was a he was a magistrate, and she said, "Look, well, you know, well, he he sold his wife." I, I really respected the fact that he could have lied. Then I'm, I'm so used to people, you know, in this day and age with with politicians and and whoever, uh, you know, bending bending the truth to 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 best suit them. But but he stepped up and you know and admitted you know, he had done that. But man, but the man was so he was so self absorbed. He kept coming back to trying to manipulate folks just you know for his own ends he just i guess he i mean hardy just made the character flawed and that's that's what he was and uh, uh you know I, I i really couldn't like him i was just going to say it was a lot harder not to drink back then because mm-hmm. people drank alcohol like we drink water today the water wasn't as good so that was a real admirable thing he was already starting to 
lose his temper and get angry with Donald before he wanted to break his oath. So it's hard to say what precipitated what, which came first, but definitely he was not one to handle alcohol well. Is um, that this book certainly does show that just like with Rome, there are consequences for our actions. Yeah. And even when we think we escape them, we really don't. We eventually pay for what we do most of the time. In rare instances, maybe you don't. Maybe you die first before you have a chance to really reap the consequences of what you've done. But most of the time, um, you really will have to face the consequences of your actions, and that's probably somewhat biblical. Um, maybe that's what he was trying to say, but... Um, but I really do think that um, that was another thing that, that um, just as Rome fell, you know, they paid for what they did, just like he paid, just like Michael paid for what he did. Any other thoughts uh, from any of you who have not yet had a shot that I don't mean to monopolize the, the night here? Well, I just wanted to say that um, I had read this book for the second time, and like Don, I liked it better the first time, and I think... Part of that had to do with the instructor that I had, too, bringing it to life for me, and just um, the fact that I took a whole Thomas Hardy course, and so, you know, we discussed Thomas Hardy, I mean, a whole bunch of his works, and and so it was kind of in a whole context. Um, but I, I did like the book, and I especially like his descriptions of the Wessex and, and all that, um, and... I was going to say about the character, I mean, you know, some characters, I mean, they seem, well, maybe not so much in his books, but in general, you know, they seem to get away with a lot. But this guy, Michael, he was a guy that didn't seem to get away with <laughs> any of his misdeeds. I mean, karma definitely got him in the end all the time. Good points, all of these. Uh, anyone else before we move on to the next, uh, my next piece of this? Well, we've spent some time with Michael. I think it would be probably not very appropriate if we didn't at least spend a little time considering Susan. And some of you are shaking your head saying, well, what kind of pill did he take before he keyed that mic? Um, but, but before we dismiss her completely out of hand, um, let's, let's think about her a little bit. I, I almost see in her a kind of tragic beauty. And I know that sounds ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure she was none of those things, that perhaps at some level. A lot of the focus is on her illiteracy and the fact that she presumed that, having been sold, that she was in very deed bonded to this sailor. Um, but I think there's a kind of, uh, well, kind of beauty in who she was. In some ways, to me at least, Susan was almost childlike in her ability to bend her will to others. I'm not suggesting it was admirable, but I think that, that we live in a world of, of strident, my way or the highway kind of approaches to things, and sometimes we all need to be assertive and certainly draw lines in the sand and all those things, certainly good things. But uh, Susan demonstrated a tremendous ability to, I think, bend her will to those to others, and by so doing, I think there were some benefits, believe it or not, that came to her as a result. Um, she retained some humility, uh, perhaps almost too much so, you might argue, but I think that the fact that the girl turned out as well as she did in many respects is indicative of the fact that the mother was involved and was a good teacher and taught well the lessons of life, and I, I'm sure the the, the genial sailor, as, as Hardy refers to the girl's real father, was also involved. There's no doubt about that. But I don't know that we can dismiss Susan out of hand as being some sort of limpy, cut-out, paper doll character. Um, what are your thoughts? I think you, you pretty well nailed it. Um, Susan, I think, was a very important character. She oh, It's Mickey. Uh, she grew from... Uh, being very subservient um, to keeping her bond because she had been sold to the, to the sailor and no matter what she thought she had the honor to stay with him and the honesty to say well this is what's happened she had a problem discussing it with her daughter who wouldn't um, 
But when she finally did, she um, laid it on the line as best she saw um, and then wrote the letter to to um, Michael to let him know, in fact, that he was off the hook. But I, I saw her as very honorable and as very almost saintly. I did too, actually. And what I... You know, when you went back to the beginning of it, she tried really hard to get her husband not to do what he was going to do. I mean, she she was uh, as assertive, I would imagine, as a woman could be in those days. She really tried hard. And, you know, when it didn't happen and she was actually sold, uh, then she went obligingly as if it were her duty and she lived that duty out and I admired her a lot well the only thing I guess I'd like to say is I do think I think she was a real person of honor and character and in a way I think maybe it was because of her simplicity sometimes we do find honor in the simplest people because they really want to remain honorable and we could say well she wasn't very smart or she didn't know but she really did try to do the right thing and she put her daughter first which is Absolutely wonderful. She didn't always make the right decision as far as her daughter was concerned. But like Siri or like uh, Mickey said, who wouldn't struggle with that? You know, it's easy for us to read a book and judge, but if you imagine yourself in those circumstances, that would be tough. Called back, typed in a comment. Uh, um, I'm not very good at reading this very fast because I don't. I can't see it that well. But she says um, this is about the Romans. It was the same thing with. His, um, with his working, he cheated people in the beginning, um, and this is the same as in the, with the Roman Empire, and that, that's a good point. I was fascinated also to consider the death of Henchard's actual biological child, and you know this book is so much for me about circles and 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 uh, closing a ring, if you will. You know, it, Henchard um, essentially signs the death uh, certificate on his marriage and shortly thereafter the one product of that union that was uh, perhaps the most um, important or most uh, I don't know the most the, the best part of it perhaps in some respects the one part of that union that really mattered deeply or you know is dead and I've often thought about that with regard to to, to Michael how a part of him died as well. Um, and, and so there is a connection in my mind between the death of the first Elizabeth Jane and the death of that marriage and, and a certain death uh, and cankering of Michael's very soul. Um, I think Hardy does a great job of bringing that circle into full place there where you have the, the tie-in completely. Why she would name a second child with the same name? I mean, do you think she was thinking of uh, maybe planning ahead? Well, she clearly demonstrated some initiative in trying to find him after it was presumed the sailor was gone. So this is not some creature who, who was so tragic and and so spineless that she she didn't try to do things of her own accord and use her mind and you know she had a great many things stacked against her but she um, she did you're right I mean naming that second child um, the same as his what you know wow and and you have to think about Captain Newsom uh, allowing her to do that that must have been a, a sort of a magnanimous thing on his part as well it makes you wonder what he was thinking and I don't want to bog us down too much in that, but it is a fascinating thing. It it does give you a bit of a clue into his life, a tiny window into who he was, I think. Well, I kind of thought that felt like Hardy was just kind of tricking his audience. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I know you can look into what her motives were and all that kind of stuff, but it seemed to me that that was just a way to make us think that, that Elizabeth Jane, that, that, that we were told about through the whole book, was the one that, that uh, that was Michael's child, but hey, I guess I'm jaded. If it fooled uh, the reader, it sure fooled the mayor also. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you, you know, Alan, I think you're right. It, and this is Nolan. Alan, I think you're right in that, that 
you know, Hardy was perhaps a little uh, being contriving here in, in this. And, yeah, we all got tricked, <laughs> as it were. Um, and that may have been the only motivation. Uh, but it's still interesting to think about. Um, let's spend just a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, with the character of uh, Donald Farfrae, an interesting individual. I never quite came to terms with him. Uh, I didn't quite know what to think. I, uh, I'm i on Alan's uh, camp on this in that I didn't ever come to like the guy very much, but he was an absolutely essential part of the story. And it fascinates me that he would give up going to the United States, um, where he really might have made a, a tremendous name for himself in, in wheat farming out there in the plains of Kansas or somewhere. Um, and instead, he stayed in this, this village. What are your thoughts on Farfrae, and, and what, what was his relationship to these folks? This is Joshua. I thought um, uh, Donald. It was so. I thought it was so interesting to me how, how you know, in the beginning when, uh, when when the mayor, uh, when Michael, when when he first met him, he's like you know, because he, he he thought that he was uh, his uh, the manager that he'd hired to help him with his uh, with his corn and this is uh, with uh, the the uh, the corn business, the whatever the crop business that he had there. But then it turns out that he wasn't, and then. Uh, no, they were like the best of friends. He was like, "Hey, you know, I want you to." Michael, Michael was like, "Hey, I want you to come to my house, have some dinner. I don't, I want, you know, I want to help you find a, you know, a, a good, uh, good place to live." You know, they were, they were, you know, the best of friends, and uh, you know, Donald was managing his uh, Michael's business very well. You know, good, the good prices for the for the corn, and you know, the uh, weighing it all out better than better than Michael could. And all of a sudden, it just shifted everything. You know, Michael. Uh, he wanted to be wanted to be better than him, but I, I thought that was so interesting when they uh, when they when they had that change. Uh, yeah, this this is Alan. I, you know, I really liked that character Farfrae in the beginning. I mean, he he seemed real real savvy. I mean, he he was a good businessman, obviously. Uh, but but then uh, that was another thing about the book that I didn't like. The characters all seemed when it came to affairs of the heart, they all seemed so mercurial. I mean. I mean, you know, here Farfrae seems to be, uh, you know, having a relationship with with Elizabeth Elizabeth Jane, and then he he meets Lucetta, I think was her name, uh, and 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 then he's you know he's off on her. So I don't know. They they just seem to kind of bounce around uh, rather quickly, and, and you know, I, I, I kind of lost a lot of respect there. And then then as his as his star kept rising and stuff, he he just didn't seem quite as likable, but. uh uh, I, mean, I mean, he was obviously necessary to the story, but uh, 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 he, he was an interesting guy. Well, I thought it was interesting that he dropped his, this is Nikki, he dropped his um, uh, plans to go to America, um, took up with Michael, did a job for Michael, but it showed to me how shallow he was. He really didn't have roots. He really didn't have... Uh, he let decisions be made for him. Lucette decided that she was interested in him, so therefore he fell in love with her. Oh my! Um, and any he, he just went whatever way the wind blew. And I, um, I found him almost more disgusting than the mayor. Let me try this out with you, if you don't mind. Um, and you know, this is Nolan. Haul me up short if you think I'm going way far afield on this, but I'm just tossing it out for you to think it through. You all know that Hardy has a lot of biblical references in here. As I read Farfrae, I couldn't help but think of the Old Testament story of Joseph being sold into Egypt and then becoming a trusted uh, trusted leader, really, and uh, to the point where he ultimately had tremendous power and uh, the, the Pharaoh respected him and held him in such high regard. Now, obviously, the difference is that Joseph of old retained his integrity, apparently, to the very end, it, it would appear, and um, never attempted to trump the um, the Pharaoh or never attempted to, to rise above him in, in terms of the job that he did. But, folks, I see an awful lot of that relationship here. You have a guy who was pretty much nothing. He came into town just passing through 
and he worked it such that he rose to a position of tremendous preeminence in, in Henchard's business. But unlike Joseph of old, Donald Farfrae didn't have any real integrity, it would appear. And Allen's pointed that out rather well, you know, this jumping from woman to woman and, you know, yeah, I'm going to America. Well, now today I guess I'll stay here and, and do this. Uh, um, so he lacked the foundation that Joseph of old apparently had. Um, but I do see some, some interesting connections here from, from that perspective, and I don't know. You know, again, I may be way out in the field on that, but uh, it's, it's an interesting thought. Those Bible references are above my pay grade, I think. I did like the peak we got into the 19th century. Donald's courting our, our dating technique was much different than we experienced in the 21st century. Yes, he would have done well with uh, online dating, I suspect. Uh, just sort of, or, or what is it that the young people do these, the speed dating thing, I guess, you know, where it's, uh, you just move from person to person rather quickly. I don't even want to go there, but yeah, you're right. They, he, he might have done well with some of those techniques. It's interesting that so many people didn't like Donald because I, I thought Hardy probably wanted him to be kind of the hero, but maybe yeah. not. I, I actually don't agree that he was so dishonorable. I saw him as almost a counterbalance to our main character. The thing with Farfrae is he had very little emotion. Everything was dictated by logic. I didn't particularly, I didn't get the piece about why the second affair and marriage, I can't quite fit that, but, and sometimes I think what you're doing in your life as you read impacts, and I'm doing a lot of work right now with somebody with autism, and one of the issues that we're having is that it really is hard for me to separate out when I when I explain things to him and work with him um, because there's certain there's certain places where he can't go. And as I was reading Farfrae, I kept thinking, this is a person who's very successful. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to build that success. And he's quite a bit younger, at least the way I read it, than our main character. And there was a competition set up there. I'm not sure that Farfrae really played into that competition as much as he was just doing what he did. Um, so I, I didn't end up disliking him. I thought he was important, but I thought he was he was so devoid of emotion that I think that was maybe one of the keys, whereas other characters got so stuck in the emotion connected to one event that I thought that that was an interesting interesting kind of a, a juxtaposition with Farfrae. Um, as far as the biblical references... I don't know, because I know that throughout Hardy's life, he was struggling with, with his own beliefs and ultimately did not come out a Christian. Uh, or, or, you know, when you look at the things that he wrote near the end, he, he w was a believer in, well, ultimately from some of the things he says, uh, a believer that, that people could, that life could be good, that people could choose good, but not a, not a very, not not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. I do think that in any writing in that time, or in much of the writing in that time, I think that the Bible was much more present in people's lives. So it may very well be that he pulled from some of those stories, even unconsciously when writing some of these characters. Yeah, yeah, I think Don makes makes a good point. I think he hit the nail on the head with with Farfrae. He, he was. He was just always about business. I mean, he just the, the man just didn't have any passion, and that that's what I didn't like about him. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of like he was he was always trying to, you know, you know, calculate the margin for how he was going to make the next buck and stuff. And uh, uh, that scene where I really was disappointed in that scene where uh, uh, Lucette Lucetta was dying, and 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 Hen, Henchard caught up with him and was trying to explain to him, and and you know and. Uh, and, and he he couldn't even sense that the man was being straight with him. He 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 was too busy trying to figure out well, you know the guy's trying to outfox me and you know, and and take advantage of me and stuff. So uh, th th that was that was the thing I didn't like. He, uh, all business, no passion. I wanted to go back to Susan. I wanted to go back to Susan just briefly. This book is very much about people being stuck in the past. I think it's very likely, and and Don brought up a good point with the emotion. 
uh, sometimes when a woman loses a child, she can't really deal with it. And so she sort of cancels it out by having another child and, and naming that child. I know it seems odd, but I don't think it's all that strange that she would have named her second child um, with the same name as she named the first one. No. Because I think it was her way of dealing with, with um, just trying to get through it. Okay. Well, uh, these have, have all been wonderfully instructive. Um, I did say that we would try to be done by 10 East, and I uh, note that uh, we're right at that. Uh, so we'll bring this to a close. I know in years past we've started a little earlier in the evening, which we may do again next year and uh, see how, how that works out. Um in terms of wrapping up, are there any final thoughts that someone would like to bring up, that some, some final conclusion thoughts that you have? I thought, if I understand the book, that, uh, what was her name, that he married, uh, anyway, that she broke, uh, uh, died of embarrassment because of premarital sex. And when they had the parade, that uh, that's what killed her. Was that what other one people got yes i think that was the issue is, is the, the the behavior that she and henchard had uh, engaged in it's interesting to think about victorian society versus our society you know the the victorian society was had some real uh, issues with with sexual things and uh, and yet it could talk about death without even a blink you know the old as i remember the old original lyrics to the old hymn rock of ages one of the original lyrics were when my eye strings snap in death. That's pretty brutal. You know, as you and I sit and listen to that, we think, wow, ouch. Um, because we are a society that has real difficulty dealing with concepts of death, but sex is right out there and everywhere, plain view in our society, and, and it's sort of a, a total opposite of the Victorians. They they could talk about death as, a, you know, no big deal, and we have all kinds of euphemisms for it. He bought the farm, he passed away, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we are, uh, are, you know, some would argue pretty vulgar and crass in terms of how we deal with sexual things. Um, so, yeah, I think you're correct. In, the, in that society, that would have been a real problem. Today, we perhaps shake our heads and think, gosh, why would she have to get all lathered up about something like that? Um, but I think in her society, that's that was a, a major issue. Uh, yeah, Deb Caldbeck typed another good, interesting point here. She said she was shocked in the beginning when Michael confided in Donald and told him his secret about his, I assume, about his relationship with Lisette. And she said she knew at that moment that that meant trouble. And I, I agree with that. That that really was surprising that he confided in him so quickly and so early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. That's really true. I hadn't thought about that. Any other uh, thoughts, questions, uh, wrap-up kinds of things that uh, anyone wants to to come up with before we wrap it up? To just summarize, it sounds like um, even though when people didn't like the book, everybody liked the writing style and the language. And I think everybody found some characters that were at least, you know, somewhat interesting even though you didn't really connect with them. And I think all in all, I don't think uh, even the people that didn't like the book didn't necessarily regret having spent the time to read it. Yeah, this is Joshua. I'm, I'm definitely glad I uh, read this book. I think I think it was a very nice discussion tonight. I've enjoyed I enjoyed listening to everybody's uh, everybody's comments, and uh, I, for one, am definitely I'm looking forward to next year, whatever book we we decide. Then it'll be uh, I'm pretty sure I'll read what read the book next year, and. Uh, Pretty sure I'll take part in it. So this is this is Mickey. Um, this is the first time I've been able to come to one of these because every Friday night that you chose, I had something going on. Um, I wanted to read this book for years and didn't get around to it. So thank you for choosing it. I'm not sure a 44-hour book is going to make me jump for joy, but I will try to do it. And thanks for for picking a good book. Now, this is Alan. Well, Mickey, I mean, once you get to know Edmond Dantes as the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, you'll just you'll you'll fly through the 44 hours. And thanks for everybody's great comments. These discussions are always really good. And even though I was not a huge fan of the book, I am glad I was exposed to it, and I'm glad I got to hear other people's perspectives on the various characters. Thank you very much.
And uh, anything else from any uh, any other group among or any other uh, one of us here? How is the next election selected? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Thank you for that. Um, the short answer is this: that in about July, um, around the fourth, actually, I sort of open up the field and let people come in with some some suggestions, and then from those, we sort of pare that down to one or two, because what happens, uh, Ladon, is you get you know one vote for six or seven or eight or ten different books, and pretty soon you have all these books out there with one one suggestion. And so we try to just pare it down, and and um, not an easy job. Uh, what I will tell you, and a lot of folks who have been on the list on the uh, this discussion already know this from previous years. The count of Monte Cristo has come in second every year for the last, I think, two or three, and that book just narrowly comes in second. I mean, we're talking maybe by one vote or two at the most, and so. Um, <laughs> I suppose the count is going to have to be given uh, some serious consideration in 2014 if we want to be fair to those readers who just keep putting his name out there. Um, So that gives you a brief understanding of how it's chosen. We just sort of toss it out initially and say if there's a classic on the Bard site, and we try to look for those books that are labeled classics. I don't know, you know, that that's probably flawed in some ways, but... um, we let people sort of toss in their ideas, and uh, and that's kind of how it's done. Yeah, I was wondering um, which Thomas Hardy book you read. I uh, got the um, dates mixed up on on a, another book about the shallows, about what the Internet is doing to us, and I was just uh, wondering what the Thomas Hardy book was that you guys were talking about tonight. Thanks. Well, I apologize. We didn't state that earlier. Um, we should have. This was... Uh, the mayor of Casterbridge, and uh, as, as, you, as you caught, it was Thomas Hardy, but yeah, it's the mayor of Casterbridge. Hey, thanks. Um, Nolan, I believe it is. I just want to say every now and then I um, catch your radio show, too, on uh, on the Legends. Um, it's a nice show. That's uh, very kind of you. Thank you. Um, so start thinking about what you'd like to see in 2014, and Mickey, it's interesting that you would mention Fridays being difficult um, I'm kind of thinking this is the first year we haven't done this on a Friday, and we had pretty decent attendance, so maybe we'll think next year about, uh, again, not doing it on a Friday. <laughs> we'll see. We do try to keep it around the 13th um, in honor of Scorby's birth, uh, the anniversary of his birth, but we can certainly even change that if we decide to do that as a group, as a list. So I want to thank all of you who are here, who are members of the list, for the kind of wonderful people you are. You by virtue of your ability to um, to craft great reviews and to comment on on the reviews that are out there and to uh, to govern yourselves so well, you make the list really kind of a remarkable place. And it is that. It's um. I know I say this a lot, but I, I will tell you once again that gosh, I would never have believed when we started this thing that uh, this many years later it would still be going on and it would have the kind of uh, membership that it has and that it would still be people would still be posting and so it's kind of a for me a miracle uh, in in a very real way and I'm grateful to all of you for making that miracle happen it's uh, it's been a great journey for me since those first emails with uh, with Neil Bernstein at NLS when he said somebody ought to start a list <laughs> and uh, we did and and the rest as they say is history so any other final parting thoughts Don do you want to jump on this uh, wrap it up Oh well, Nolan. This is Joshua. Just for me, real quick. I, I do enjoy the. Uh, Want to say that I do enjoy the DB review list. I don't really, uh, really send any reviews of my own, but I always, uh, I do like to make comments on other people's reviews. And uh, it, the DB review list is definitely it's, it's a great list. I'm, I'm glad to be on it. Uh, this is Sherry. I wanted to put in a plug for Accessible World for those of you that aren't familiar with this website. It looks like most of you, I think, are, but. If you go to the main page, there's lots of other book clubs, too, that meet monthly, everything from science fiction to mystery to fantasy to uh, just uh, books that of all types. Okay, Don, I, if you had any last thoughts, I'll be quiet. <laughs> all right, well, we, we may have lost him, but I think uh, I, we do want to express our thanks to the Accessible World uh, folks, to Bob and, and his folks. Uh, 
Thanks also goes to Bob Prayan for help with that phone patch. Uh, it's not an easy job, and uh, we're going to, some of us in Ohio are going to put Bob to good hard use again this weekend uh, doing a similar kind of thing. So this is a dress rehearsal, I guess, for what lies ahead. <laughs> but we do want to express our thanks to him for the help and to Bonnie for that great introduction, to all of you for your comments and for coming tonight. This is really kind of cool. You know, the Fall Classic has been around now for several years. We, you know, we some of us were around with war and peace. Some of you remember that. Now, that was a 60-hour experience. Uh, wow, what a slog. But it was that was a lot of fun. And uh, so anyway, um, thanks again for making this one another great moment in our list history. And we'll declare it in, in the books and all done. And we will plan to do this again next November if uh, unless we hear from the list otherwise. So thanks all and good night.